Hi, welcome to What Chance. I'm your host, Karin Elias. This podcast is about people who have been to prison. It's about their life before and after prison. I talk to educators, social workers, activists, and the formerly incarcerated. I want to find out what happened. Are some people at higher risk of going to prison? And what is it like to reintegrate into society? What does the justice system and society really care about? Punishment or rehabilitation? Come, join me. My guests today are Noel, Casey, and April. They met at a march for parole reform in New York City. Noel is a Hudson Valley community organizer. She has a BA in political science with a minor in sociology from the University of Massachusetts. She works for the nonprofit organization RAP, Release Aging People in Prison. And RAP is proposing two bills, elder parole and fair and timely parole. April is a mother with a son who has been incarcerated since he was 17. April runs two Facebook groups, Mothers of Incarcerated Sons with over 1,000 members and Families for Criminal Justice and Prison Reform. And she also has been filming a documentary with other moms across the country called Unheard Voices. Welcome, April. Welcome, Noel. You too, you find common ground in your advocacy for criminal justice and prison reform, but you have different reasons for this work. For you, April, it is your son who has been incarcerated. He was only 17 when he was sentenced and went into prison. And as a mother, how are you dealing with this? Um, I guess the best I can. I always tell everybody that I never thought that something like this would happen to me, and then it did. And I didn't know much about the system. And my initial response to it was to learn everything possible about it. Um, from the courts and the prosecutors and the judges to the jails, you know, just the system, the charges, the penal codes and everything that kind of goes along with it. And that's kind of brought me through the different phases, I call them, from arrest to sitting in county jail and court dates and then sentencing and, you know, moving from county jail to state prison and checking docs to find out where he's going to be finally put. You know, I just believe in do good, get good. And I form these groups and try to give back to as many people as I can. It's been an emotional roller coaster. The system is very broken and I just try to have my voice heard as much to try to bring change. And, you know, now that he's, he's been in about three years this December and will be up for parole um, next year. So initially I 
wanted to, now that he's done a good portion of his time, wanted to get involved in the next phase, which would be parole for him and seeing how the parole system is set up for failure. I reach out to whoever I can and I get hooked up with different people from all different areas. And, you know, I want to get with them and get educated and try to make change to the parole system. And that's how I came in contact with Noel. And, you know, we had a great conversation on our ride down to New York City. And, you know, I'm glad to be here and sharing my experiences with you both and your audience. And if I can make a difference. You know, not only did your son's life change dramatically, but it sounds yours did too, because you are really experiencing all of this with him. So you're on the outside trying to be his parent, Mm -hmm. which I'm assuming is difficult if he's not living with you and prison has regulations, right? When you can visit how often it has regulations on phone calls. So I can imagine that it is really difficult to have somebody else basically raise your child. Um, Yes, absolutely. Um, I still try to parent him to the best of my ability, but, you know, unfortunately he is serving the consequence of his decision that day back in December, 2018. And it's been very hard, um, but I try to, get involved with the prison as much as I can. And I've very rarely missed a visit. And then I go up there and get to know the people. And, you know, I think we form a respect for one another. And there's been a few times where my son maybe has done something that he shouldn't be doing. And, you know, the response from the correctional officers is, don't make me tell your mom, you know, instead of uh, maybe a consequence or something to that. I think they know that my son was a good kid who made a a poor decision. Prison has definitely changed him and it is hard. Um, I do vocalize any concerns and even when I'm angry or mad, I call up there if something's not right. You know, I let them know who I am and I'm not going to be quiet about it. And I don't fear retaliation from the prison. I just want them to know sometimes, you know, wrong kid, wrong mom, like this isn't how people deserve to be treated. You know, I I like to think that prison is a place for rehabilitation, yet it's really not. Yeah. Noel, you are a community organizer and you work for an organization who also would like to see some changes. And can you talk a little bit about what got you involved? Sure. Yeah. And thank you, April, for always sharing. I love hearing from you. Yeah. So I got involved with RAP through my previous work working for the New York State Legislature. Um, I had had a meeting with some of the leaders who are my now bosses um, and was completely inspired by the way that they spoke about change and transformation and rehabilitation and putting that towards helping those that they had left behind during their time. I immediately wanted to get involved. A lot of my desire to do this work comes from like an anti-racist lens, coming from uh, a mixed race home. I personally haven't been impacted by incarceration by my own life or in my immediate family, but very much so from the effects of my community growing up in Yonkers, 
the segregation that I've seen, the level of policing that I've seen very much inspires me to push back against that, that culture of policing, that culture of punishment that we see and very much come to this work through like a restorative lens. Um, someone who's been a victim of a personal crime, seeing things be restorative and not just putting band-aids on problems and throwing people in cages, but actually addressing harm is very much the kind of work that I'm interested in doing. And that's very much the concrete foundation of RAP's work. So it was founded by a gentleman who had been incarcerated for 31 years on a 15 year minimum sentence. He was denied parole over nine times during the course of his incarceration. And he was a leader, had four college degrees, two master's degrees, had created educational programs focused on HIV and AIDS, which at the time was very controversial um, when he was in prison and was very much a leader, very much a mentor, very much a wise elder, but was continuously denied parole based on the nature of his crime, which was um, the murder of a police officer. When our founder, Mujahid Farid, was finally released from prison, he took all that leadership and founded RAP with the intent of ending life imprisonment and focusing on restorative practices and helping release people who had changed, who had evolved, who had taken their time during their incarceration, made something of themselves, and then can return to their communities and give back, can be those leaders, can be those family members, can be those community members that we need to help prevent more folks from going into prison, more young men, more young women um, from returning to prison. So that's very much the basis of our work. And again, with a focus too on the race element with over 75% of people in New York State prisons who are black or brown or non-white, that's very much part of our work too, is to dismantle this, this racist system that continues to harm all these communities and rip apart families generationally. You mentioned policing is definitely an issue and that happens before prison. So we definitely need to work on that as a society too. And then when we go and look inside prison and we think about rehabilitation or punishment, what is actually going on, right? And what would rehabilitation be like? And is it happening? Why is it not happening? There's many people who the docs or the prison itself is not setting up the kind of rehabilitation that we need, especially during COVID now. Schooling and college programs have been shut down. Visitation has been shut down, which we know is super important for people to heal and to have something to work towards, being able to see your mom and your sister and your uh, brother and your friends and your wife uh, and your partner. Those are all important things in terms of healing and working towards what you want to come home to. There's no anti-violence work. There's no healing because many people who are incarcerated are often victims of crime themselves, especially women who are often victims of domestic violence crimes. Um, so there's no real setup for people to heal and to address the what they've done outside of their own individual work, which is oftentimes the prisoners themselves take it upon themselves to create these groups, to become mentors to each other, to take each other under their wing and say, I've been in here a long time and I know I may not ever be released, but let me help you become better so that when you can go home, you can be a better person. A lot of that restorative work and healing happens amongst each other. There's not a lot of system built into it that offers that rehab to them. It's very much focused on 
you did something bad, you need to be punished for it. And then we'll see if we let you out. There's not a lot of space for that rehabilitation, at least from my experience, talking to certain men who have come home and like visiting people who are currently inside, a lot of that work happens on their own. Yeah. And you said something, you know, repeatedly to return home because that is the reality. People are not staying in prison forever. I think like 90 something percent of people incarcerated will come back out. What is their chance to live in society while finding jobs and not uh, being tempted to commit another crime? What is the education like, right? So if they have long prison sentences, prison has to be the place where that is offered, right? And for you, April, this is probably a current issue because your son probably didn't finish high school before he went into the prison. He graduated, um, he was a senior in high school when he was arrested and in county jail, one of the schools in the county went to the jail and taught. And my son received a high school diploma while incarcerated and the teacher that taught him in the county jail came to his sentencing. So that's great. So he could finish high school mm -hmm. and can he go get college degrees while he is in prison? Um, he is currently on a waiting list for the college entrance exam and has been, as uh, Noel mentioned, you know, with COVID had pushed everything back. And um, so he is on the waiting list and he did do a vocational of horticulture um, and he did get rave reviews from his supervisor there, but he was working part-time prior to uh, his incarceration. So he was cutting lawns and doing some landscaping and other, other things. So he had an interest in horticulture and learning more about growing plants. Other than that, he's kind of been sitting idle ever since he finished vocational. He's on the waiting list for um, ART, anger retention treatment, and he is on the list for ASAT, alcohol and substance abuse treatment. You know, my understanding, you don't even start the ASAP program until about six months prior to your earliest release, um, which is coming up, but I hope that he gets into um, these programs because, you know, it is probably going to be a parole condition that he complete those programs prior to his release and his sentences four to 12. Yeah. And I want to talk about parole in a moment, but I'm just thinking also, so when you say, your son is on a waiting list for all these things. I'm assuming other people are on a waiting list also. So the question would be, why are there so many waiting lists? And if we are talking about a waiting list for anger management, what is the atmosphere like inside prison if people cannot have access to these programs? It's, it's hard. I mean, especially as a parent, you know, you think about everything from like, say 17 till, you know, when my son um, his at his earliest release, he will be 21. You think of about all the things that you miss out on, not just me as a parent, but him himself, like the actual graduation, even though he received a high school diploma, you know, that was bittersweet for me driving to the high school to pick up his diploma. 
but not physically being able to attend a graduation. Um, you know, you think about proms, you think about college, you think about those teenage years that kind of mold you for your future. You know, my son has probably seen things that I don't think most people would encounter dealing with in their lifetime. Um, my son has been pepper sprayed by COs while he was laying in his bed. He um, was handcuffed on the porch and another CO came up from behind him and pepper sprayed him in his face while he was handcuffed. He has seen people get their faces sliced. You know, they incite violence in prison. There is a lot of drugs in prison. You know, you learn to not trust anybody. I've watched the transformation um, just in visits with my son. You know, I'll look at him and I watch how when I sit across from him that he, his eyes are constantly moving around the room, like watching his surroundings. And, you know, he tells me if he plays cards, he doesn't like anyone standing behind him. He likes his back to the wall. And I think it's sad that, you know, you're put somewhere where you don't even trust, you know, you would think that he would have some sort of father figure even there, or someone that might show him that he's worthy, not constantly getting beat down, whether it's physically or emotionally, because his brain's not even fully developed yet at 20 years old. You know, I really worry when he comes out, he says, you know, mom, if you have people over, like, please tell them not to like, you know, come up and hug me from behind. And he's going to need some therapy for sure. Um, I'm sure he will suffer from PTSD. And that's why my mission now is to do everything I can to attempt to, to have him released at the four years so that it's not as detrimental to him. The longer he's there, the harder this is going to be for him trying to readjust back into society and trying to put this behind him. Uh, my son has never been in trouble before. Um, he doesn't have a criminal record. He was denied youthful offender treatment. You know, and again, for a 21-year-old coming out with a felony conviction, it's going to be extremely hard. He has so much life ahead of him to try to get apartments or work or anything. It's going to be an uphill battle. And, you know, even for people that have addiction issues, they take them and they throw them into an environment that's riddled with drugs. And they expect them to get better. And then they give them a bus ticket and they get released and then they're on parole and then they test dirty and then they throw them right back into the same place. I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really frustrating and back to, we can go back to the parole reform and fair and timely because right now as it stands, my son doesn't have any tickets in prison. Um, we are just waiting to complete these programs. He does have a, a certificate and review from his horticulture teacher. And when next August comes and he sees the parole board, if he was denied parole, it would probably only be on the crime alone. Yeah. 
And that's also something I suppose is what Noel, you are working on changing. If somebody comes up for parole, rumor has it the first time people don't get it. Even the second time they often don't get it. Even if they have no tickets. And when you say tickets, I think we might have to explain what does that mean? So tickets in prison are, you know, disciplinary tickets. In New York State, there's three tiers. Tier one is uh, not reported in your file. It's not reported to parole. It's basically like maybe you talked back or something. Tier twos are, you know, a little more serious and they are reported and tier threes being your worst tickets that usually will get you box time and and or additional charges and time added on or any good time taken away. Then you have to worry, you know, because it's really in the the hands of the facility and the correctional officers there because not all tickets are legitimate tickets. And I think sometimes they just call the shots there. I just wish that they had more guidance and that people were treated with more respect because I believe that the correctional officers would get more respect. You know, sometimes I look back at situations or I read articles about inmates, you know, that just snap and I'm not saying that it's right to assault an officer or anything, but in the back of my mind, I kind of think, well, how much can you take from one person and keep your mouth shut and constantly be belittled or abused before you just have had enough? It really sounds like prison reform is an incredibly complex issue. There are so many points that need change. And if we just look at a parole, so when somebody comes up for parole, it means they're going to be probably released soon and they have to uh, appear in front of a parole board. Now, who is the parole board and what are they looking at? So when you're coming up for parole, it means that you've reached your minimum um, sentence. So like for April Sun, it's his four years. So that would be, and so for many people, that could be 15 years, that could be 20, that could be 25. Um, and then people have that end number, right? So for April Sun, it's 12. For some people, it's 50. For some people, it's life. And so essentially, though, the judge has only sentenced that person to that, at least that minimum with maybe some additional years, but they have to serve at least that minimum. So then when you go before the parole board, it's an assessment of whether you're ready to be released. But because of the nature of the parole board, which is made up of former law enforcement, former correctional officers, people who are appointed by the governor, often becomes political in nature. So it essentially can become a resentencing of a person and not an assessment of whether they're ready for release. Lots of the questioning can be directed specifically about the crime again, um, and not about what that person has done during their time. The question can be, you know, well, why would you have done that? Why were you here? Why did you get in that car? Why were you hanging out with those people? Which is essentially everything that went down in the court when the sentencing happened. These people are not there to do that, but because of their backgrounds as former correctional officers, as former law enforcement, former prosecutors, that becomes the line of questioning. And so it becomes very unfair. We know then a lot of those people typically are like white. A lot of the people who they're seeing on the other side are black. 
So that same dynamic continues to play out and it continues to just become this cycle of punishment. They're saying, well, you did something so terrible. There's no way we can release you. But that is something that'll never change. What happened is done. It'll never change. There's nothing anybody can do to take it back. There's nothing anybody can do to change that. But what they can do is have spent all of their time, their five years, their 10 years, their 15 years, 20 years, and become better people. I'm sure April Sun is not the same person he was at 17. Uh, Many of the men I work with who went in when they were 27 are not the same people they are at 65. Nobody is the same person they were even a year ago. I think we all know that. But in this system, you are judged on your worst moment rather than for who you can become or who you are becoming. And then that continues this cycle of punishment, which is why it's so important for the fair and timely bill, which specifically allows for people to, they can't be denied based solely on the nature of the crime. It has to be a denial based on something larger than that because many folks are denied on that fact alone. And again, that is a fact that'll never change. There's nothing anybody can do to bring anybody back. There's nothing anybody can do to have not robbed that store, to not have sold those drugs. There's nothing they can do. But they have now gone to school. They've gone to counseling. They've taken alcohol and drug classes. They've taken anger management classes. They've been in counseling for abuse and healing on their own terms. They've picked up trades. They are going to work their way up and change their lives. Hopefully they want to be home. And they can't have that if they're always going to be judged for the thing that they were sentenced for. So fair and timely essentially just works to try to make it not a resentencing and basically just an opportunity for people to really be seen for who they are and not what they did. Yes. And I have a few thoughts listening to you because I think it begins even at the sentencing. We probably also have to question, are those sentences appropriate are maybe the sentences too high and you had also mentioned racism before does that play a factor so there are so many steps right and then once somebody is incarcerated and does take all these courses and improves themselves in so many ways well that is rehabilitation so if we are saying we are sending somebody to prison because we are saying okay something went wrong and this person needs to rethink and we need to help that person to change then do we not believe in our own abilities to do that right and should we not have an interest in this because if the person comes back out into society and nothing is different in his or her life what's the consequence? They'll go back inside because they have no choices, right? So is there a chance that the parole board changes their mindset? I mean, that's definitely the hope. I think to go to April's point that she was making earlier too about how dehumanizing it can be to be in there and then how how that also affects the way that you appear um, in front of the board. You've been abused and dehumanized for the last however long you've been in there, it's very hard to then go through and you've been through so much trauma and then to have to relive the probably the most traumatic moment of your life up until that point and have people continue to judge you for it is again, like such a a traumatic event in and of itself. And then to relive that is also hard. And so 
the dehumanization that you face in there and then again at the board kind of creates this cycle then of people saying well what is the point if i'm just going to get denied anyway then i have to just sit here i just i'm just going to do my full time the effects then of wanting to be released or even believing that you can believing that you have the purpose to feeling worth, worthy of that just decreases because you're like, well, I see, I've seen so many people go to the board and get denied. Like, why would I be any different? I'm trying to get on, you know, these classes, but I keep getting denied or I keep get waiting on the wait list. So what's the point? Uh, the system then is not set up for people to succeed. It's like you, you to succeed, you're the lucky one. It depends also then on like which parole commissioner you get. You may just get one person who is feeling generous that day a commissioner who maybe has a little bit of a different mindset, maybe had someone in their life who was addicted to drugs so they can understand your situation, maybe had someone who, you know, had been a victim of a crime and they can sort of see the point. But most of the time it's through a a law enforcement, you committed a crime, you deserve to suffer for it kind of lens. As something that RAP also does as a, a pillar of our work is to help reform the parole commissioner board and put forth names of people who are more in line with the kind of thinking that we all have, trying to get people who have either been impacted by incarceration, like having someone like a mom uh, or a a family member who had had someone incarcerated be on the board, someone who uh, has more of a background in say mental health or uh, addiction or those sorts of things. Someone who has a more nuanced understanding of why people commit crimes and what happens when people do, and then how we can assist them. So that's another part of RAP's work that, you know, we're hopeful that people will put forth names of folks who are more in line with our work and can help change the nature of the board. But it's a large conversation of like how people think about punishment, what people think about prison, what people think about how we address these things. And lots of people still, I think, believe in lock them up, throw away the key. If you can't do the time, don't do the crime. There's still very much that attitude. And so I think we're all trying to work on changing that, but that's, it's definitely an uphill battle. A lot of people face that shame about it. And we, I think, speak very compassionately about it, but there are a lot of people who don't feel that way. And some of those people are parole commissioners. Yeah. And, and April for you, so parole is coming up for your son and you knowing that there is a injustice in how people are looked at I can't imagine like what do you even dare to hope like how you're preparing yourself for the situation of parole coming up what if it is denied what if he does get paroled what's going to happen after that I try not to project I'm preparing him the best I can for parole, um, I have hired a parole attorney to go back to what like Noel said, though, you know, when you meet with the parole board and it's like you're being resentenced again, only this time your lawyer's not there. And I don't mean that like as a lawyer to get you off. I mean, to even guide you at 20 years old, my son is from graduating till now, he's really only learned about the prison system and he hasn't been able to educate himself. There's a a few great guys in there, older guys that have taken him under the wing that are kind of helping him along with this process as well. But again, as Noel said, his mind state is kind of 
in that denial already that he's not getting excited. And, you know, I'm kind of excited. I'm hoping for the best. I'm ready to appeal the denial of parole. And I know that might take six months if that happens. I just want him to be positive. You know, I'm sure he has a lot of guys in there. He's seen guys come back from the board and they're not getting out. And, you know, like you said, rumor is they don't get out the first time. And so I'm a little um, concerned, but I just try to stay positive and as prepared as I can to give them no other reason. It would be crime alone. And again, like Noelle said, we can't change what occurred. I try to put myself in the, the victim's family's shoes as much as possible to keep things real for me. Some people say, oh, you can never, you know, or even me, you'll never understand until you're in that situation. Um, there was a death in, in our case, sentencing four to 12. This was a second degree manslaughter. The maximum uh, sentence for second degree manslaughter is five to 15 years. My son was like I said, 17 with no criminal history. Um, and he was sentenced on the very high end. I've always taught him about choices and consequences. And, um, you know, we took a plea. We've dealt with this the best we can. But I feel like the soul of the son that I had prior to his arrest is gone. And now... I deal with someone who's institutionalized and it's not the same person. So that's why seeing the transformation for me and getting him out of the facility as soon as possible to try to save him from being damaged any further from this. You know, he lives with the remorse of what happened. Um, these, you know, we're teenage kids. This was a non-intent, non-violent charge. It, it's very unfortunate and it's tragic. And me talking about it, it helps in the healing process. I don't know. I hope, I wish that fair and timely that they could have come to an agreement and that would have been signed into law because it would make a very big impact, I believe. Yeah, and your son was 17. So that's a minor, but he was tried as an adult, and he is in an adult prison. You know, there are so many aspects of this where you don't have any control. And I'm wondering, how was that for you? And how was it helpful when you met other mothers who were in a similar situation? I think as a parent, the unknown was the worst part of this. I almost felt a sense of relief once he was sentenced because all of that part was over. You know, then came the anticipation, the anxiety over state prison and things you see in the movies and things you hear. And, you, you know, he had never been to prison. I had never, you know, known about the prison system. I just came up with ways to kind of maneuver myself positively through the system and and it's really worked for me. So I try to share that. I needed support. I didn't know where to look for it. I went on Facebook and I said, you know, just looked up like incarcerated children. And I actually became a member of another group before forming my own group. And it was so nice to see and communicate with other moms that were 
dealing with the same thing because I think society doesn't understand, you know, and, and with the documentary, a mom from that group, her son is in Texas. He was 17 and, and he was sentenced to 40 years. You know, she felt like, who do I talk to about this? And people aren't going to understand. And, you know, then she decided no more, like I'm going to reach out to other moms. No one ever talks about the effects of incarceration on the family. You know, I've had other guys in there tell my son, like your mom does your bit harder than you ever will. And I feel that I do, you know, you worry if, if you don't hear from them, you, your mind automatically goes to the worst possible scenario. Like, did he get beat up? Did a CO do something to him? Is he in the box? And it's like, you know, then the next day you hear from him and he's just playing cards, but you know, it's like, you're kind of like you, all these crazy emotions go through and the groups that I'm in and I have in the documentary, it's nationwide and it's always boggled my mind how things are so different in so many different states. And the way I've educated myself, I just really help other moms that even in different states that are looking for information or have questions and I'm right on the computer, like looking up that information and trying to help them. And I believe in there's power in numbers. And I look at 2.3 million people incarcerated, you know, in the United States. And I'm like, God, if all 2.3 million of us got together, we could really make some noise. I just try to involve myself. I believe if I'm not doing something to try to change it, then I don't really have the right to complain about it. There are times I break down. I can go a good six months and then I'll lose it for a day and I just regroup and I get back up and I keep going and I've turned my sadness into strength and we just want to get like even with the documentary we want people to understand it's you know back to what Noelle said so many people are like well don't do the crime if you can't do the time and uh, you know or you get oh you know what a great parent they were that their child did this and we didn't ask to be put in this situation, but it's somebody that, you know, is your family and you care about them and their well-being and you don't want anybody be dehumanized or mistreated. They're, they're serving their consequence and they, to me, deserve to do that time. I'm not saying it should be a country club, but they should go and they should get the programs that they need and the help that they need and move forward from this. You shouldn't go back to prison because you missed a parole appointment or you missed a phone call or you came five minutes late home. The system is set up for failure and it's a billion dollar industry. I've met some really, really good guys behind the wall just from my son being there. Guys like Noelle said, who have been in there for a while or they have been in and out, but now they're sick and tired of being there and they've educated themselves and there really are some good guys and, and they deserve to do their time and come out and have another chance at life. Yeah, well, we do know that people can change because even if you look outside of prison, we make mistakes and we can change, right? Uh, we sometimes do something stupid or we do something that we're not aware of what the consequences we can change, but somebody has to believe in us, right? So I'm wondering as you are advocating, where are your biggest hurdles? In terms of getting the bills passed is the legislature. 
there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of, like I said before, sort of just the way people see and understand prison. There's a lot of hurdles there, especially if there's violent crimes. Uh, People are much less likely to think that you deserve to be released. If there's murder involved, people definitely are more hesitant to that. If there's any sort of sexual crime, it definitely, again, is a a resistance. And RAPS 2 bills are unique in that they don't exclude anybody. So no matter what your crime is, these bills will apply to you. There are other bills that have passed in the legislature that are a bit more conservative in that, where they say this applies to everybody except, uh, you know, child sexual offenses, or this applies to everybody except for um, extreme murder cases. And again, with our bills, they don't automatically release anybody. They just allow for opportunities to be seen before the parole board. They just allow for a more fair process, a more equitable process. And that's really the first step in trying to dismantle the whole system and work towards a better, a more rehabilitative, a more kinder, compassionate sort of prison system. So this is just to say we're allowing for people to have a chance at release, especially for people in terms of elder parole who may not get a chance to be released until they're in their 70s or their 80s. Like the woman who April mentioned her son was sentenced to 40 years. He may never be able to go before the parole board. His earliest chance may be when he's 90. And the average life expectancy of people in prison is in their like late 50s, early 60s. So our elder parole bill is set at 55 to be able to see the parole board because that's technically considered elderly in prison. And that's set by uh, Department of Corrections docs because of the conditions, because you're, you know, an elderly person, you're a grown man sleeping on a cot. You don't have, you know, access to medical care that you would. Like April said, there's a lot of drugs going around. So there's very easily, you know, you're just exposing yourself to a lot of harm. There's fights and you may have bruises or broken ribs or things that maybe won't get healed properly. So just the wear and tear on your body is just accelerated. So you're basically 10 years older than you are, you know, outside than when you're in prison, because obviously 55 is not elderly in outside of a prison situation. Those are just some of the things that, so some people will say like, that is too young. It should be 65. So there's some of these just conditional things that the legislature has sort of continued to push back on. I would say the police unions are another big obstacle. Again, they very much, you know, are in the business of locking people up. So they want to continue to do that. They very much push the idea of, you know, if we release all these people, crime will go up, people will be unsafe. But again, these are bills that focus on community safety. Having elderly people come home, there's, you know, you age out of crime after a certain point, you're far less likely to commit a crime. The longer you've been in prison, the far less likely you are to come out and commit a crime. And you basically age out of that. And then to have more father figures, more community leaders, more families put back together, for those people to come home, it literally restores families, literally restores communities. And that's where a lot of the public safety will come from. In Yonkers specifically, there's a lot of groups of men who are formerly incarcerated going into communities, teaching financial literacy, teaching uh, sports, public speaking, all of these skills that maybe they wouldn't get otherwise in those communities, but these are men who have served time, come home and said, I didn't have this, I want to give this back to my community. And that's where a lot of the public safety comes, not from police on every corner, locking up another family's cousin or an older brother who now that uh, younger brother 
doesn't have his older brother to look out for him. So he might fall back into the same, the same life, a little boy who doesn't have his dad, you know, a whole family, when a mom is incarcerated, the whole family is messed up from that. It doesn't necessarily create more crime just because there are more people who have committed crimes on the street. It actually helps and saves those communities because these are communities that are deeply impacted. I think in Brooklyn, it's like one in four families has a, a member of their family who's been incarcerated. That's an entire community, an entire borough of the city of New York that would have so many people come home. In Westchester, I think we have 800 people who are incarcerated. That's a lot, but that's not the streets are filled with criminals level of people. So I think, you know, we have to then think about that too. And then who are these people? They're mostly black men. And so that's another part of that as well. And then I'd say the third biggest obstacle too, at least that we've seen is upstate. A lot of these correctional officers rely on the prisons for their jobs. So a lot of those unions don't want to see prisons closed, don't want to see people be released, less people incarcerated, less correctional officers, less jobs. Whole communities are dependent on some of these prisons for a part of their economy. But that literally their jobs are on the backs of folks who are in prison. We don't want to perpetuate that either. So those are some of the larger pushback things. I think a lot of people, when they hear parole too, say, oh, people get out on parole and then they commit more crimes. That's also not something that has been proven to be true. It's a lot of fear mongering. It's a lot of false reporting. Uh, if it was one person, we don't talk about like the 2000 other people who never committed a crime, who went on to live normal lives, who just happened to be in prison for 10 years and now they're home. It's a lot of misinformation. It's a lot of people not knowing these stories, not hearing from families and sort of feeling of it very much like people who've been incarcerated are very other and not really understanding that like so many people have been impacted by this. I have a very good friend from college who just recently told me that she had a cousin who's incarcerated and has been incarcerated since he was 18, won't be released until he's 42. She said, I had so much shame telling anybody I've gotten to visit him. I talk to him almost every day and I never wanted to tell any of you. And that fear of not even telling her very good friends in fear that we would judge her or, you know, uh, speak ill or be like, why? Well, what did he do? That fear and that shame is very powerful. And so I think rap and things like this very much open up the conversation to say, no, you should be able to tell your story with no shame, with no fear, and that you're just as much as worthy and deserving of a happy life and opportunity as everybody else just because you did a bad thing doesn't mean you're a bad person. I know plenty of people who've done bad things, who never went to prison, who will never go to prison, and they don't have to wear that scarlet, you know, A on their chest the way that people who've been incarcerated have. I feel like there's a lot of social barriers and a lot of like real barriers in terms of like power and bureaucracy and all of that. I think this is a strong and mighty group of people of incarcerated loved ones and people in their lives. And I think that, yeah, if more people can just hear these stories and more people can be inspired by them, because I know I am, then I think there's a real chance to shift the culture and to get bills like these passed and get people released and change the whole system of incarceration. Yes. And that makes me also think about what's been happening during this pandemic, because I think some of these things came more to the surface. They were always there, but most of society 
didn't know, didn't pay attention, didn't have to pay attention, right? Because it didn't affect them. But now we're talking about it. And so it sounds like education is definitely important to let people who may not have any connection to this justice system know what's going on because people are voting, people are sharing their opinions, people are telling others, right? I do hear more programs on the radio talking about these issues, about, you know, elder people in prison, about parole, about the money that prisons make, that the whole system makes, about why are we putting kids into adult prisons? Change, of course, takes time, right? But at least we are going into the right direction. And so I was wondering what each of you would suggest. How can people who are not directly impacted support positive change? I don't know how they're going to support the positive change. I know that I surround myself with people that are very supportive to me and my family and my son and the things that I'm passionate about. I'm very, very vocal about things that need to be changed about my son's story, about what our family has went through. Um, you know, my daughter has been um, like my backbone through a lot of this process. And of course, my focus is on this terrible situation happening and giving this my attention. And, you know, as a parent, I'm kind of leaning on her for support and she's leaning on me for support, but I, I never realized how bad she was suffering from her brother being gone. They're a year apart. I speak to, you know, to other moms, I encourage them to get involved and not be ashamed of telling their stories. And I remember one time just being like, I'm going to ask all my friends on Facebook, how many people on my friends and family list here had a loved one incarcerated? And I was very surprised at the amount of people that actually answered my question and that I wouldn't really have known because they never shared their story. But I believe because I share mine gives them kind of a wow, like, look what she's doing. Like Noelle said, again, we can't take back what happens, but we can speak on it. And I don't just do what I do for my son. For me, once I learned about the system and there is a lot of racial injustice and, you know, I think that things happen to certain people because of the, the color of their skin. But I think that I get across to even if it's five people, for me, that's progress. If I get someone to look at something in a different light, or if someone's to question about what happened with somebody in, in a case, even if it's not my own, like the response would be, could you imagine if this happened to your family? Because they don't imagine that. And that was me prior to this. I never thought that this would happen. And these types of situations tear people down and they tear families apart and marriages don't last. It's very difficult. Um, but I just try to give back and I, I vocalize as much as I can. And my son knows that, you know, we went after the officer that sprayed my son um, when he was laying in his bed and we sent officers special investigations out and we appealed the 
for charge bogus ticket that they wrote, even though my son had evidence at the hearing of a pepper sprayed pillowcase, bed sheets, the, the left back shoulder of his t-shirt he was wearing because he tried to cover his face while he was being sprayed with that arm. And, you know, you have higher ups at the prison conducting these hearings. So, you know, who are they going to side with? Their cousin, who's the one that wrote the ticket, you know, or their coworker, or the guy that's trying to claim he didn't do it. And my son was found guilty and we appealed those tickets and, and they were reversed. I'm not afraid of docs. The facility where my son's at, they know who I am. Like I said, we've had a... Um, I believe a mutual respect for one another because they know I care about my son. They know I just want him to do his time, you know, and unfortunately for some of the other guys, you know, that's rare. People give up on them, but I let my son know when I went after this officer, I said, you know, I'm not doing this just for you. If I have to make this officer think twice about doing this to anybody, then I've made progress. And then I, you know, go back to, geez, like, who's ever been pepper sprayed? Like maybe the police when they're in training, but for my, you know, 18 year old son at the time, these aren't things that he would ever like have done or had happened to him in life if, if it wasn't for incarceration. Yeah. I just want to add to that, contacting your legislators, like getting involved with campaigns like RAP or other sort of, there's the clean slate bill that helps get people, you know, housing and jobs for when they're released, going to marches and rallies, postcards, calling up, being in these like little groups. I'm personally in a smaller action group where we talk to folks who are inside and when there's issues like over the summer when, you know, it's 90 degrees and the guys are inside and they take a fan away from them in a room to somehow punish them. And now basically everybody's like cooking inside the room. They call one of their wives, their wives is in the group with us, says everybody call docs now and sort of mobilize people to say like, we're watching you, we know what's going on. And like April said, like, you won't get away with this. We won't let you treat them like this. They kind of rely on the fact that they think a lot of these guys don't have people looking out for them, don't have families, don't have fierce moms, don't have fierce wives, uh, fierce kids who are going to say, you're not going to treat my, my loved one like that. They're a person. And even though you don't see them as a person because of what they did and where they're at and where you think you are, they are. And you're not going to leave them in a 90 degree room when they're already in a bad situation. So stuff like that um, is always a great way. And again, voting for people demanding that you say, this is, I'm a voter and this is something I care about. I'm a person who's impacted. I think, especially in areas where people don't think they're impacted by these issues um, is very much where people who aren't impacted need to get involved and say, no, I'm not, I don't want my tax dollars to go to this. I don't want to fund these prisons. I don't want to incarcerate more people. I don't want to know that this is happening, you know, under my watch in my district, under the Senator. And I think they rely also on people not knowing on people not being involved, especially if it doesn't impact you. And again, having that perspective of, I know people have said to me before, you know, oh, well, like, Noel, if someone killed you, I would want that person to rot in prison. And I'm like, right, but what if I killed someone? Are you just going to say I deserve to rot in prison and die? Absolutely not. Like, you're my mom. You're my best friend. You're 
my boyfriend. You're going to defend me until forever just because you love me. And that's what everybody does. And everybody has an opportunity and should have the opportunity to do that. It's not that black and white. There's tons of nuance. We're human people and people make mistakes and bad things happen. I think something that rap very much does is we never try to minimize the harm. Bad things happen. People get hurt and there needs to be accountability. But there's also a level of what is this doing to actually address what happened versus just continuing to punish. And now this whole other family is also impacted by this. Uh, This family may have lost someone, but this family lost someone too now. Um, And they're also going through something terrible and traumatic. And maybe they'll get their person home one day, but that person will be different. And their whole lives have been changed by this now. And that person's whole life will be changed. What could have been their career might not be able to, where they could have lived, what they could have done. The impacts of incarceration don't undo the harm. They just punish it. And so what can we actually do to address harms that have been done? And oftentimes, at least the people that I've been in contact with, those who've been impacted by incarceration, either loved ones or directly, always have a more nuanced, caring, compassionate understanding about how to address harm and how to make things better. And those are the people that I want to listen to and that I want to learn from because they've actually gone through something and actually have the wisdom to be able to be reflective on their mistakes and the bad things they've done and teach others. These are people who are the change makers. These are the people who actually know what's going on. So I don't need some, you know, politician who's never done anything to tell me that, you know, these are the the bad guys. No, these are, these are the change makers. These are the great guys. Yes. Seeing humanity, right? Listening and believing in people. Yes. And I thank you really, April and Noel, for sharing your stories, being so open and sharing something that can be really difficult to live through. I really appreciate that. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you. What Chance is created in New York with cover art by Hernan Braberman and original music by Max Elias. <laughs>